Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 11th, 2018, 5-11 day for you tactical apparel types. And this is episode 2217, Expert Council Q&A for 5-11-18. Because it is Friday, 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 and on Fridays we always have the Expert Council on. Here's what we got going on today. Why you could, but probably shouldn't, put a rocket mass heater in your basement with Paul uh, Wheaton and Josiah Wallingford. Uh, making biofertilizer from chicken waste with Jeff Lawton. <clears throat> Raising pork in a pine forest with Darby Simpson. Making sausage without tough casings with Chef Keith Snow. Raising rabbits to help with dog food needs, Nick Ferguson. Investing in a REIT, John Pugliano. Working with horizontal beehives, what are those? Well, you'll find out with Michael Jordan. And why we rack to a secondary when we make meads or ciders or beers or anything like that. What's up with the whole racking thing? Why do we do it? I'll cover that myself, me, myself, and I, Jack. And we, uh, we'll get into all of that in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode. Or I should say the year in history. I guess I'm still stuck on that from all the years that we did that. Uh, we are going from the year one forward here, and we have made it up to the year 127 A.D. We have Making Italy Just Another Province, contributed by David Verne. Hadrian begins to get restless after staying in Rome for some time, so he decides to go on a tour of Italy. He improves the infrastructure and makes legal decisions in the towns he visited, While traveling around the peninsula, he gets an idea for an administrative reform. At this time, Italy was divided into 18 administrative districts, with most towns left to their own devices. Hadrian changed this, divided Italy into four provinces, each ruled by an imperial governor. This didn't go over well with the populace or the Senate, and it was repealed a few hours after Hadrian's death in 138 A.D. So you can see he's going to be around for a while yet. My take by David Verne. Italy was the birthplace of the empire. The populace were all considered Roman, and they believed they were superior to the people living in the provinces. Italy, especially Rome, was seen as a home province, not just another conquered territory. And this was reflected in the way the populace was treated. Rome's poor received free bread and wine daily, and everyone in Italy was exempt from tax. One day Italy would lose its special status, but that would be years into the future. You know... My way that I see history rhyming here isn't, you know, not paying taxes while the empire goes out and conquers because GR empire figured out it was better just to tax everyone, didn't they? Um, the comfort that people have when they sit in a comfortable place and they send men and machine out to do their bidding and do horrors to others and then sit back and feel superior as they benefit off of those horrors that they never have to see. And you wonder how many people that do that today, you know, in spite of the fact that we do see some of it on television, et cetera, if they had to go look at it, if they had to go be part of it, if they had to go see it, if they had ever seen it done to themselves and to their families, if they would be so comfortable with it. That's my thoughts. Uh, next up, before we get into your uh, questions for the expert counsel, let me remind you real quick, you can help support this show by joining the MSB. To learn more about that, just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members, and you can sign up there, and that's all I'll say about that today. Let's go ahead and get into uh, our topics today with our expert counsel. Let's start out with Paul Wheaton and Josiah Wallingford on putting a rocket mass heater in a basement. Paul and Josiah, guys, take it away. 
Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from permies.com. I'm here with Josiah Wallingford from uh, permaethos.com. And uh, we're doing this together because we record stuff together all the time as part of our permaculture smackdown thing. Uh, it's a weekly uh, video show, Tuesdays at 2, uh, where we unabashedly uh, crush people's dreams. And <laughs> on this particular day, this particular question, uh, actually, Josiah's got something to add here, which is going to be great. So, Josiah, can you read the question, please? I want to put a rocket mass heater in the unfinished basement of my standard wood frame house. It is a walkout basement, if that matters. Can you put a heater in the basement and move the heat to the rest of the house on the main floor? I don't want to install a hot water system that circulates heat. Okay. So this is a question from one of Jack's readers, right? That's correct. Okay. Our listener, one of Jack's listeners. So the answer is, Yes and no. <laughs> so, yes, it can be done. And no, you probably don't want to. Uh, the restrictive part is going to be you need to run the exhaust all the way up through the roof. Uh, and the reason for that is, is that if you don't, if you're thinking like, okay, I'm in this walkout basement, I'm going to do like what some people do with rocket mass heaters and route the exhaust out the wall so it's kind of like a dryer vent. Because the exhaust is typically just steam and CO2. And a lot of people do that. And on, if you're on a single floor kind of scenario, that tends to work mediocre. You can get it to work. It doesn't work as good as going to the roof, but it'll be okay. Uh, definitely don't do that with a conventional wood stove. It's Because then it's smoke and it's all over the place. It's a mess. Um, but what happens is, is that you're talking about a scenario where there's at least two floors. And if you're familiar with how a hot air balloon works, all of that hot air wants to go up so much it will lift people off the ground. And so it's kind of like doing the same thing inside your house, but your house is too heavy to lift off the ground. But what it will do is it will create a low-pressure area in your basement. And so if you've got the exhaust going out the wall, it's going to then try to suck all the air from outside in through your rocket mass heater and then up and through little cracks and stuff up in the ceiling and stuff like that. If you run your exhaust all the way up to the roof, it totally counters that, and then the system works. Uh, so so that's part one. I've got that out of the way. Run your exhaust all the way through the roof. You'll be fine in that respect. Next item is can you heat your house this way? And this is where Josiah is going to come in, because usually what you do is people start putting these grates in the floor between the upper and lower floors and josiah how's that working out for you it's it it's not working out too great it keeps okay. the pipes from freezing now i've been to lots of homes where they have a conventional wood stove and uh they do this uh the the main floor has a conventional wood stove and then the upper floor uh which is generally referred to as child storage area uh <laughs> That, uh, they have a grate, and then the idea is the heat will go up there and heat it, and it doesn't, it tends to not work okay. If you've got the heat going all the time, it works better than if it's an off and on kind of a heat thing. And I think part of it has to do with this whole thing about this, this whole house as a competing chimney kind of a thing, where it's trying to lift all the air up, and then it, and then it, uh, uh takes it outside, because now the air pressure upstairs is so much significantly higher. But um, there's three kinds of heat, uh, convective heat, which is where you heat the air, and that heats you, 
as the least efficient form of heat, but that's entirely what you're depending on when you're trying to, to get that warm air to go upstairs. Uh, whereas when you're next to the rocket mass heater, you've got conductive heat and radiant heat, which is far more efficient. But, okay, where I live in my house, uh, in the middle of my living room is where I've got uh, my rocket mass heater, and where I work all day is on the edge of the house in a whole different room. And this rocket mass heater does heat the whole house effectively, but right next to the wood stove tends to be five degrees warmer than the rest of the house. Although when the fire's going, it's more like 10 or 15 degrees warmer. Um, but once the fire's out, it tends to heat the home pretty evenly, relatively evenly, not perfectly evenly. Um, I think you're going to get some effect like that. So, Josiah, when you run your conventional wood stove that's just in the downstairs portion, then it sounds like it doesn't eat evenly. Every, everybody downstairs is much warmer, harvesting that radiant heat, and the people upstairs who only get to have the convective heat they're too cold. Is that accurate? Exactly. We have to run electric heat upstairs or another stove upstairs. Or there's th- we have three heating elements upstairs: electric, the propane stove, or the natural gas stove, and a wood stove. And we have to run all of them. Wow. Wow. Okay. I'm I'm going to go so far as to say, like, okay, now let's suppose that your conventional wood stove downstairs put out 10 times more heat than it does now. Because, of course, a rocket mass heater will heat the same home with one-tenth of the wood. So this is a hypothetical. If it put out 10 times more heat, that would probably be enough for the people upstairs, but it would probably be too warm downstairs. Correct. Okay. All right. So, um, and the other thing is, is that, of course, with the wood stove downstairs, it's very much an off-and-on kind of thing. When the fire is out, it starts to cool off rapidly downstairs. Is that accurate? Yep. Okay. And then uh, here at my house, the fire goes out, and it'll be – in fact, I think we haven't had a fire here for two days now. And how much snow do you got at your place? We got about three feet left. <laughs> so I haven't, had a, I haven't had a fire in like two or three days, and I'm still very comfortable. Um, and it's like – but, you know, that's the mass throwing off heat for days later. Uh, so I'm going to predict – that it's plausible that with the constant heat coming off of the rocket mass heater in the basement, that it might, it, I'm going to even go so far as to say probably will be enough. But of course, how much insulation is in the home? When we're talking about convective heat insulating the home, how well is it sealed? Stuff like that is going to play a big, big role. And so I don't know. There's all these other variables, but I would say try it. I, I think it'll probably be probably be okay. It'll probably do a very good job, a surprisingly good job. There you go. I think that that's the answer. Anything else, Josiah? Um, The only other thing I thought I had was if you did a full mass all the way up the second store and out the roof, but I think that would be way too expensive. I I think that there's people that could do it. Like another thing is, is that when you and I were talking about this question, that um, was the idea that you'd have a smaller mass in the basement and um, and then you might just do something on the floor above that's going to be like uh, where the duct goes side to side to give off more heat, but there's not necessarily much in the way of a mass. So it's conducting more heat. And you're extracting more heat before it exhausts at the roof. And the thing is, is that 
the advantage of this is, is that because it's going up, 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 there's a lot more pull on this. Usually for like an eight inch rocket mass heater, we say, don't have your run be any longer than 60 to 70 feet. And, uh, but if it's going to be a very vertical thing, then I think you can go much longer because of this, because of the draw that there's going to be once there's a little bit of warmth inside uh, that pipe. Yeah. And the big issue we want to avoid is having too much mass and weight on that second floor. That's the benefit of having it in the basement. Right. So, um, all right. I think that's it. I think we're good. Okay, good job, guys. Next up, I have a question for Jeff Lawton on making biofertilizers and using chicken manure instead of a ruminant manure like uh, cow manure. Jeff, take it away, man. Hi, Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia. And I have a question from Robert in relation to um, making a brew of biofertilizer and Robert doesn't have access to ruminant manure, and he'd like to know if chicken manure, which he already has in his system, can be used instead. Now, it probably can, but what the result is, I don't know. The classic uh, ruminant manure is actually processed through their moldable stomachs, and, and ruminants are better than ungulates as far as this concerned. so... Ruminants have the classic stomach combination, and particularly cows. So you can use fresh cow manure, and it always used to be fresh cow manure was originally used. Then we found that the, 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 the stomach, the rumen of the cow is even better. So really, you've got to be slaughtering a cow now to do it. So that, that's not so easy. Um, and not everybody's got access to that material. But if you can, try and get reasonably fresh cow manure because that is best. Now, I'm really uncertain what will happen with a chicken because chickens just don't have the same digestion system and they're not the same set of enzymes, I would imagine. I, I think it would still have some effect for sure, but definitely your best bet is try and get fresh cow manure and uh, fresh organic cow manure would be even better, I'd say. And the best of all is the contents of a rumen of a freshly slaughtered cow. So there you go. Um, let us know the results. Okay. Cheers. See, I'm, on this one, my gut is don't. Um, I think chicken manure makes a fine compost, and that compost can make an excellent compost tea. Um as a biofertilizer using hot chicken manure sits wrong with me. Jeff was explaining about ruminants and how they process stuff and all, but you also have to think about what they eat. Cows eat vegetation and nothing but vegetation. Um, chickens eat everything. And chicken manure has a, a higher propensity for uh, different diseases and things like that. I just don't think it's probably the best idea. That's my personal opinion. Your mileage may vary. Next, I have a question for Darby Simpson on raising pigs in a piney forest. Darby, take it away. Hey there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson of Simpson Family Farm and the Grass-Fed Life podcast, calling in to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. This week, I've got a question from Stephen about raising pigs. Stephen is down in Georgia, and he's got some property, but it's got a lot of pine trees on it, so he's wanting to know if there's any issue raising the pigs in there. Um, he's got uh, roughly seven acres uh, that 
is a uh, 12-year-old planted pine area, and he started thinning it out. He's thinking about taking two acres and fencing it off uh, for some pigs. His main question is, you know, what are my thoughts about raising the pigs under the pine? Uh, he's, he's concerned about a lack of natural food or that the pine might somehow be toxic to the pigs. Um, Steve and I did a little bit of research, and I didn't find anything that suggested raising pigs under pine trees would be toxic. Uh, most likely, they're probably not going to try and eat any of that stuff. Uh, they might play with some pine cones or something like that. So I guess my advice there is just to observe and react accordingly. But generally speaking, I, I really don't think it's going to be that big of an issue now. The other thing you did mention about a lack of natural food, that would be one of my concerns. If, if that's one of your goals is for them to be able to scavenge for as much as they can on their own. Uh, we've got some areas on our farm, even though we're in Indiana, that are heavily, heavily in uh, evergreen plantings. And there's really not much else that grows in those areas for a number of reasons. They shade stuff out. They don't allow a whole lot of uh, understory growth. Uh, grasses uh, aren't really compatible with those trees. So, you know, in those areas, there's really not a whole lot of natural food. There's a little bit. Now, you did mention, however, you were thinning some of this stuff out. So it is possible that you could plant some areas with some quick-growing annuals for your pigs uh, to consume and eat on while they are in those specific spots. I think something like that would probably be worthwhile if you're trying to cut your food bill and get some more green material into the pigs so that they'll uh, save you some money, uh, maybe plow some stuff up, and also enhance the flavor of the pork. That's the main thing we get from getting the animals to forage, particularly with a pig, is just this wonderful enhanced flavor of the pork. That's one thing that our customers who buy our Retail cuts of pork and our bulk pork always talk about is the phenomenal flavor that the pork has, and that's because we're trying to, uh, you know, get them as much green material as we can. So if you've got some areas in this pine forest where you've opened up the canopy a bit, I would suggest doing some research on, uh, again, annuals, quick growing cover crops that you could, you know, plant in there for the pigs to munch on. And I think you could probably accommodate that you know, pretty inexpensively. I don't know if you've got a tractor, um, but, uh, you know, if, if you do, then you've got a tool you could use. You could use a three-point spreader. Uh, you can always spread the seed by hand. If you don't have a drill, you can get what's called a cul-de-packer. You can probably find one of those pretty cheap. It's just a well, they can they can be elaborate, but they can be also very simple. It's just a small six foot, eight foot wide toe behind piece of equipment that's just going to mash the seed down into the ground. There's a number of ways you could get the seed in there, uh, but I think I'd give that a shot. Or you could even try, you know, planting some brassicas or different vegetables in there if you want. But again, you're going to have to have a pretty open area because a lot of that stuff may not like the pine trees. They may not be compatible with growing in areas where you've had pine trees. So do a little bit of research there on, you know, things that you could plant that would grow well in your pines. Being that you're in Georgia, um, I, I think the one advantage you, you have here is the, the great shade opportunities that the pine trees will create for your pigs. Um, you know, pigs really do need a lot of shade. 
Um, they have to have ways to cool off because obviously they don't sweat. That's one reason I'm such a fan of raising them in the woods. So I think that gives you a distinct advantage. Uh, something else you mentioned is that you would have to truck water out to the pigs in an IBC tote for storage. I don't know if that means you don't have buried water anywhere on the property. Um, that's certainly an option to do that, although that is a lot of work to uh, to haul water out there like that. Uh, I've done it. I've been there. You do what you got to do. But if you're within, say, you know, a thousand, maybe even fifteen hundred feet of a piped connection for water, I would tell you just to go get some garden hose and roll that out there. Um, you know, it's going to cost you call it twenty five bucks. Per 100 feet, so you might spend $300 or so, but it's going to be well worth it because you're going to have pressurized water. Uh, the pigs can always be drinking from a pressurized connection. I think that's important. Do what you got to do, but if you can if you can roll out garden hose so you've got water out there, that's what I would tell you to do. It wouldn't hurt to go ahead and put an IBC tote out there and fill that up as a backup uh, just in case you have a leak, power goes out, something like that. You've got some extra water on hand. Um, you're also going to have to give these guys a place to make a wallow. So again, having pressurized water, that'd be really nice to find kind of a low lying area in each one of your paddocks and put a, you know, put a few gallons of water in there and let them build a wallow. Uh, eventually in time, they'll act, they'll kind of make their own little pond. (laughs) If you're, if you have any clay at all in your soil, uh, they'll pack that down and you'll get this little ponding effect and you'll have wallows in the future for future pigs. So there you go. Those are my thoughts. Uh, just do some research, but, but maybe try to mess with some annuals, see if you can get some additional food out there. Um, and by the way, buy a good, good hog feeder. It is well worth the investment to put a hog feeder out there that will hold a lot of feed. Uh, you can just fill that up once a week, roll it to the next paddock. It makes life so much easier. Um, so that's what I got for you, Stephen. Hopefully you found that helpful. Uh, for the rest of you, if you find this stuff interesting, check out the Grassfed Life podcast where we talk about this very kind of thing every week. Every Monday, there's a new episode. You can find that on iTunes or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can also find it on our website at, at uh, grassfedlife.co. Yes, grassfedlife.co. Free blog articles, free podcasts, uh, free resources out there for you. If you're interested in going deeper, like Stephen here, and trying to make some money, um, like say make ten grand off of twelve retail hogs, totally possible. I do it all the time. Check out the resources we have. There's a free webinar that's posted on our Facebook page at uh, the Grass Fed Life Podcast on Facebook. You can follow us there. Watch a one hour. Uh, free webinar out there on how to raise and profit from pigs. And if you want to go deeper, if you're interested, you can, you can check out the online course that covers poultry, pork, and beef production, as well as marketing and business and accounting and legal stuff and insurance and you name it. We cover it. A to Z course. You can check that out at farmbusinessessentials.com. Uh, there's about an hour's worth of free video previews out there from the course that you can watch. So even if you don't want to buy it, you can still learn some stuff. So feel free to check that out. As always, everyone, thanks for the questions. Keep them coming. Enjoy answering them for you. As always, have a wonderful weekend and take care.
All right, next I got a question for Chef Keith Snow on sausage and someone having a problem with the casing on their sausages being tough. And I will have to tell you that in Chef Keith's little preamble that I took off of this, he had a childlike giggle over the person's tough sausage. Keith, man. Anyway, I should play that. I'm not going to do it, though. Just a little little beavis giggle there, <laughs> like that. <laughs> anyway, in all seriousness, Chef, tell us how to keep our sausages from having tough casings. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and FoodStorageFeast.com. Wanted to answer Michael's question about why the sausage casing is tough. Now, there are plenty of reasons, uh, Michael, that this can be happening, but the number one reason is that the casings can be old. Um, I don't know how long these things have been sitting around. Maybe you just purchased them or maybe you've stored them for a while. But number one, you want to make sure that they are not uh, over six months old. Um, the next thing is proper rinsing and soaking. Um, when you get the casings and you're about to use them, a lot of people make the mistake of just uh, putting them in some warm water. But you need to rinse the insides too. Remember, a casing is essentially like a flat garden hose. So you want to um, open up, and you can use any different method to um, have the end of the thing open so you can rinse water through it. And it's a little clumsy if you have a very long casing, but you want to rinse the inside as well as soaking the outside. And the soaking needs to be done after you give it a good flush inside and out, a good rinse. You want to soak them at least 20 minutes in tepid water, you know, maybe 110 degrees. And that's going to help rehydrate them and keep them from being stiff. And that is... um you know, it can be a problem when the sausages are super tough like that, but also the the snap that a natural casing gives, remember, is part of the of the charm. And when you get a sausage, I don't eat sausage that has um, you know phony casings, as collagen casings. Um, I just don't like the texture, and um, I try to avoid as much of the science as possible food science that is and stick with the natural thing so past their prime casings can be tough um, the other thing is when you're going to smoke sausages i know you didn't smoke these that you were asking me about um, but you have to be careful some folks will take sausage that might be stuffed and cold and they'll throw it into a very hot smoker and that is a, a sure way to get a tough uh, casing, you want to start pretty darn slow, maybe 130, 120 degrees in your smokehouse and slowly um, raise the heat from there. You don't want to go over about 180. Um, the other thing that you can do is when you get done um, cooking the sausage, you can cool it off. Assuming you're not going to eat it right away, you can cool it off under running water. It actually tends to hydrate the casings a little bit and brings the temperature of the meat um, down to a safe temperature before you store it, that is, if you're storing it. So that's the reason that um, you probably had some tough casings. My guess would be either they might have been a little old, and you don't even know how old they, they were, um, but that could be it. But probably the main reason is you didn't rinse them uh, inside and out and let them soak long enough. If that's not the case, um, I don't know what to tell you, man, but that's what I would look for is having fresh casings and making sure that you carefully rinse those suckers inside and out. Now, while we're on the subject of um, sausage, I wanted to mention um, if there's any Polish people here 
A lot of people don't really uh, associate Poland, that culture, with having great sausage. I mean, they, you know, automatically think, you know, galumpkies and, you know, cabbage rolls and things like that. But they don't understand um, what a wonderful um, sausage culture that Poland has. But there, there is a particular sausage. It's cabanuzzi, K-A-B-A-N-O-S-Y. Now, these are admittedly difficult to find if you have a Polish sausage store in your neighborhood, which, you know, they do exist. Uh, I remember there was a place in South Carolina. I mean, right in the middle of nowhere, um, it was a European import store. And these folks uh, were from Poland and they had a lot of the goodies from the old world. But all of you sausage lovers out there, try and find some cabanusi. They're a thin, um, I think it's either sheep, I think it's a sheep's, uh, the casing is made from sheep. So it's, it's much smaller than a pork casing. And they're about when they're, this is a smoked sausage. Um, it's pork. Sometimes they put a little bit of beef in them, but they're only about a half an inch, um, in diameter. They're long sticks and they're, you know, they've got quite a bit of smoke on them and they, they tend to be quite dry. But these are awesome, um, sausages. I mean, I couldn't think of a better snack on the road than one of those. So do check out your, um, European store or a, Polish sausage maker and in a lot of the major cities where there's a lot of Eastern European influence, you know, Chicago, places like that, you might be able to find these, but uh, be on the lookout for those because they're darn good. Anyhow, I hope everybody in the audience has a terrific weekend. Um, of course, I want to encourage you all to go and check out foodstoragefeast.com and uh, we're continuing to add to that course there. So Check it out. And Jack, I hope you have a great weekend with the Ducks, man. And uh, that's it. Take care, folks. I guess my addition there would be, what type of cases were they? Were these uh, a natural case? Were these a collagen case? That type of thing. Because there's uh, a lot of different options when it comes to casing sausage. I almost inevitably use um, collagen casings. Uh, which are quite stiff. They don't require any sticking, uh, 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 soaking or rinsing or anything like that. Uh, they kind of come in like this crinkly accordion type shape. You know, you push them onto the tube, you cut off, you know, so you can give it a twist and start running your, your press and they fill up really easily, but they are a little bit tough. And the reason that I use them is because they're a hell of a lot easier. I mean, they're a hell. Let me tell you, when I say a little bit, I don't mean a little bit. I mean they're a lot easier than your, your traditional sausage casings. You have to s soak, and they're thin, and but you know, especially depending on like, there's different types of collagen casings. There's clear, there's smoked, etc., and they're designed for different things. And some of them are designed more of like a snack stick type of use. They're a darker, uh, heavier smoked collagen. These are all 100% edible. But if you think about like a Slim Jim, like really not a Slim Jim, but I'm just giving you for folks that maybe don't eat snack sticks that are good ones, an idea. Like any kind of thing like that, a beef stick, what have you. Usually they kind of have a snap to them, but the meat inside is really kind of soft. And so a lot of the snack sticks and whatever are made with a, a little bit tougher of a uh, casing because it, they want to give you that mouthfeel, that, that snap to the stick. So... You can control it that way. The other thing you always should realize 
With sausage, it's always an option to peel the casing uh, from it, uh, depending on you know, for a variety of reasons. We will often, uh, when we make meatballs for workshops, we'll go through 10, 15 pounds of Italian sausage mixed with ground beef. And uh, this, you know, the, the most economical sausage we can find is actually cased. Uh, and I'll just cut all the casing off and just so it can be mixed in as free meat. But uh, you can also, of course, uh, you know, cook sausage and then remove the casing. The casing really doesn't provide a great deal of flavor to most sausages. Additionally, if you're smoking sausage, once it's smoked and set, uh, you can pretty much peel that if the if the casing is tougher than you would like or you used a casing that was either designed to be peeled or maybe it's what you could get and was a little bit tougher of a casing than you wanted. Or it was tougher than you'd really want in the final product, but you used it because it was easier. So just that's my little addition there. Next up, we have a question for Nick Ferguson on rabbits for dogs, as in raising meat rabbits for pet food. Nick, take it away. Hey there, TSP listeners. Nick Ferguson here. I want to let you know I probably have a couple short trips coming up to Texas in the next month or two. So if you're wanting to get in on one of those consulting tours, shoot me an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com. I'm trying to get a couple more scheduled before the heat really starts to set in. And I'll be all over Texas, so uh, just shoot me an email, and I'll see if I can fit you into the tour schedule. Now on to the question for the week, and this is from Corey, and he asks, what is your process for turning rabbits into dog food? Uh, he says he has a 7-year-old Anatolian Shepherd, 3-year-old Great Pyrenees, and a 12-year-old Siberian Husky. Lots of mouths to feed, and big ones it sounds like so i started keeping rabbits to offset some of the cost or so i thought one problem none of them eat rabbit or squirrels i shoot or rats i trap i tried giving them whole animals freshly dispatched i've given them animals without fur without guts even quarters nothing the meat just sits there and they eat the kibble around it this is frustrating because they all love deer scraps in fact they sort of went on a hunger strike after hunting season when he didn't have any more scraps for them and had to go back to dry food he really doesn't like the idea of having to cook animals for his dogs especially since he's under the impression that a barf diet is far better for them anyway what am i doing wrong and what can i do to get my animals to eat other animals thanks nick cory all right, this is a great question and one I probably need to do an update on to flesh out the instructions. But for now, we'll just get right into how to introduce your dogs to good food. And for the record, I'm a huge fan of the BARF diet. For those of you who haven't heard of it, it's an acronym for Biologically Appropriate Raw Food. And if your dog is used to eating ground and compressed cornmeal, wheat germs, soybean meal, meat and bone byproduct, and whatever other vitamins and minerals they add to the garbage to make it edible for our canine friends, then they might not know what to do with the fresh or even a live rabbit. <clears throat> They'll be unlikely to make the switch quickly unless they're real hungry or just like the taste naturally. So I've done two things in the past. Not fed the dogs for two or three days so they're real hungry and then tried the raw food. If that didn't work immediately, then I tried lightly searing and seasoning. Just lightly searing is the key there. If that didn't work, then you gotta go gradual with the introduction. You know, if they lived for a long time just eating dry kibble, then it's going to take them a little bit of an introduction to get them to eat raw. I started by slaughtering and butchering the rabbit like I normally would for myself. Seasoned and cooked the rabbit all the way through, removed the meat from the carcass, and fed them only the meat. And next time, I did the same thing, but only seared the outside, so it tasted a bit cooked. But the inside of the meat and the bones were still cold from the fridge. It's important to not cook the bones. And then I reduced the seasonings. 
and lightly seared a freshly butchered rabbit that was only skinned and not gutted. You see the progression? We're getting the dog used to eating raw and introducing the canine candy, also known as the offal. Then the next time I only removed most of the fur and slightly seasoned the rabbit just on kind of the middle section, the belly, where they would be biting in first. Just a little bit of salt and seasonings to keep the perception that this is still the same kind of dinner. Then as soon as they were demonstrating that they were comfy with taking mostly raw rabbit, I did away with seasoning altogether and just skinned the rabbit most of the way. I left some fur on. And then the next step was just to kill the rabbit and open the belly cavity so there was some blood to taste and a starting point for the dog to get into its meal. And after that, all I needed to do was a quick cervical dislocation, instantly killing the rabbit, and toss it over the fence to the first dog waiting to snap it up. The rest would wait for theirs. And that's pretty much it. I fed that way for a few years until I got too busy to keep up with rabbit breeding and feeding. And nowadays, they mostly get regular dog food and only the occasional rabbit or retired chicken. Now, my plan for the future is to get an incubator running, hatch chickens on a weekly cycle, add them to an Ohio brooder every week, and that would go in the chicken roosting area in a barn with the protected feed tray. And as soon as they get old enough, they'll eventually be getting 90% of their feed from free-ranging in the woods, and that'll be some really cheap meat for our table and also some really cheap dog food if we don't need all the chicken meat. And combined rabbit and chicken plus extra eggs, maybe some quail every now and again, should provide my dogs with pretty much all they could need for a perfect canine diet. Of course, they get some table scraps and and stuff like that. And the nice thing is, if I walk outside with a .22 rifle or a pellet rifle, the dogs all start looking to the trees for falling food. I don't eat squirrel. I call them dog snacks, and the dogs love them. I know I'm going to get emails from people saying the bones will kill your dog or they'll get punctured intestines or, or, or. But to that I say, man, I've been feeding dogs that way with no problem at all for years. So I guess I should do a disclaimer. Feed raw at your own risk. Also, you should consult your vet and the USDA, the FDA, your local PETA club, and maybe one of those magic eight balls just to be on the safe side. <laughs> all right. I'm Nick Ferguson from homegrownliberty.com. And remember, guys... Like I keep mentioning, I have a few opportunities for consulting in the next month or two on my trips to Texas, so don't miss out on that chance. Just shoot me an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com. That's all I have for today. Hope you are having a wonderful week. Do good things. All right, good stuff from Nick Ferguson. And, Nick, if you're listening, bro, if you're going to be in Texas and you don't stop by Nine Mile Farm, I'm going to kick you in your skinny ass, man. You need to stop by and spend an evening and have some beers with me. Anyway, next up, uh, John Pugliano uh, with an investing question on something called a REIT. What is that, and uh, what do we think of that? John, take it away. Hey, TSP listeners. Today we have an investing question from Rob, and Rob asks, What do you think of using extra cash to invest in a REIT? He says, I have some extra money I would like to grow over the next few years fairly aggressively and not put it all in the stock market. Any other ideas would be appreciated as well. Okay, Rob, well, let's break down your question a little bit. For those in the audience that don't know what a REIT is, that's R-E-I-T. That stands for Real Estate Investment Trust. Now, Rob, I'm going to chastise you a little bit with the way you framed your question, because you asked generically about, you know, what do Jack and I think about investing in a REIT? Well, that's sort of like saying, what do you think about investing in a stock? 
Well, I don't know. Last time I checked, I think there were something like 7,400 stocks that were publicly traded on the major United States exchanges. So, you know, is it good to invest in United States stocks? Well, which one of those 7,400 are you going to invest in? In a sense, a REIT is really, and I'm speaking broadly here, okay? I'm not going to get down into the weeds with the details, but broadly speaking, a REIT is nothing more than a legal structure. You know, you have a company that may be an LLC, a limited liability company, where the company may be incorporated as a C-corp or an S-corp. Well, you can sort of think of a REIT in that nature. A REIT is really nothing more than a group of investors that are pulling their money together, and instead of incorporating their company, they're forming a trust. And to qualify as a real estate investment trust, you have to obviously be involved in generating income and operating profits from real estate. And then as a trust you distribute 90% of your profits or the income that's made from those real estate operations, you have to distribute that to your shareholders. So really, you know, on a high level, that's all a REIT is. It's, it's just a company that makes money from real estate. I think that's the way you should look at it from a pure investing standpoint. And so having said that, you know, to come back to your question where you don't want to put all your money in the stock market, I would say, you know, on a broad scale, investing in a REIT is really no different than investing in the stock market because there are so many different types of REITs. You may not be getting the, I think, the broad real estate diversification that you think you're getting. And what I mean by that is that a REIT just has to invest in real estate. What does that mean? It could be single-family homes. It could be multifamily apartments. It could be farmland in rural areas. It could be high-density housing in urban centers. The real estate could be directed towards health care where it's invested only in hospitals or maybe in urgent care centers. It could be invested in parking lots or industrial warehouses. I'll give you another example of how specific a REIT can be and in a lot of ways why I think it's really no different than investing in any stock or any company. You may be familiar with the name Warehouser. Warehouser is considered a REIT. And up till about, oh, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, they were a very vertically integrated company. They owned the forest, they grew the trees, they harvested them, they owned the mills that then turned that into lumber for building houses or into brown boxes for making packaging. They were a standard Fortune 500 company. But after the meltdown of the stock market in you know 2008, sometime thereafter, they redesignated themselves as a real estate investment trust because their primary source of income now is not coming from the downstream, vertically integrated products that they used to produce, things like lumber and paper, but rather their income is primarily or wholly coming from the timberlands that they own and the other natural resource type properties that they manage. So Warehouser, you know, is it a stock or is it a REIT? Well, from a corporate structure, it's defined as a REIT. Now, from the actual investment performance, you know, had you owned Warehouser back when it was a paper and packaging company versus now that it's a REIT, is it any less volatile or any less cyclical? Uh, I don't know. I haven't studied it in great deal, but I really don't think it's that much different. The biggest difference may be being that they pay out a higher dividend now than they did in the past, but I don't think it necessarily makes investing in that company any more or less advantageous just because it's a REIT versus a C-Corp. I'll throw one other out there for you just, again, to get a perspective of what a REIT is and isn't. McDonald's could probably be classified as a REIT. In fact, a few years ago, there was talk of that, that rather than focusing on the franchising end of their business, 
it may be more of a tax advantage and more profitable for them to structure themselves as a REIT and solely focus on the income that they spin off from owning and renting out and leasing all that retail space that the McDonald's restaurants are sitting on. So again, would McDonald's be a better investment if it was a REIT versus if it wasn't? Well, there may be some tax implications there, but in getting back to your specific question about you want to invest in REITs versus not in the stock market, I think in a lot of ways, it's a difference without a distinction. Now, also to address the part of your question where you mentioned that you want to have some aggressive growth over the next couple of years. Generally, I think the reason that most people invest in a real estate investment trust is for the dividend. And they're looking for something that's more like a bond, something that's going to give them a fairly reliable and high rate of return in the form of, of something like a dividend. And so from that aspect, REITs are generally thought to be more of an investment vehicle that's going to produce an income than produce specific growth. So do I think that REITs are a good idea to you know, broadly diversify outside of the stock market? Yes, I do. If you're doing it in an exchange-traded fund or a mutual fund, where you're getting broad exposure either to many companies or multiple sectors within the real estate industry. And I also think they're really good for people that want to invest in real estate, but don't want the headaches that are involved with personal real estate holdings. You know, for example, if you want to benefit from the residential housing market and you go out and buy individual apartments or individual houses in your neighborhood, well, then you either have to manage them yourself and deal with the tenants or you have to go out and hire a property management company. But if you invest a portion of your portfolio in a REIT, well, now you're getting the broad exposure to the real estate market without any of those problems. So as a diversification strategy, I think it's a good idea to take maybe 5 or 10% of your portfolio that you want to put into real estate and invest it in a broadly diversified REIT ETF. But to get back to your direct question, I wouldn't necessarily do that over the next few years looking for aggressive growth. I think the likelihood of higher interest rates could act as a headwind on real estate prices. I mean, think about it. If interest rates go from, say, 4% to 6% on a 30-year mortgage, well, that could have a significant impact on the monthly mortgage, and it could price a lot of people out of the housing market. And if interest rates are going up, that would possibly mean that residential real estate prices would have to come down so that they would be more affordable. So that's one thing that would discourage me from investing in real estate until we get a better idea of where interest rates are going to stabilize at. Now, to finally get to that growth part of your question, overall growth comes from technology. New and emerging technologies are where the most risk are, but it's also where the highest growth potential is. So if you're really looking for aggressive growth, Personally, I would avoid real estate, and I would be looking in the technology sector. There are a number of exchange-traded funds that focus in that area. There's the broad-based index, the QQQ, which is going to basically give you a cap-weighted exposure to the NASDAQ 100. There's an ETF that I own called RYT. That's an equal weight of the NASDAQ, and so you get to invest in technology, but you're much less focused on the big large cap companies like Apple or Facebook or Netflix. Those big companies aren't going to represent more than maybe 2 or 3% of your overall portfolio, where if you invested in QQQ, you're going to get a lot of exposure to those big FANG stocks. To give you a couple other ideas about investing in technology, and these are, again, more higher risk, I own an ETF that's called BOTS, B-O-T-Z. That's focused on international companies that are invested in 
robotics and artificial intelligence. It, it's highly weighted towards Japan, which is a real growth sector for robotics and artificial intelligence. So personally, I like that fund. It has a competitive ETF called Robo, R-O-B-O, which is very similar, but it gives you probably more diversification outside of Japan. There's also an internet security ETF called HACK, H-A-C-K. Now, I'm not invested in that, but I think that cybersecurity is one of the most important and likely to be one of the most profitable areas going forward in technology, certainly in the next five to ten years. So I'd look into that as well. Jack, I know that you've owned ETFs in the past. Let us know what you think about REITs. And as always, thank you for the opportunity to answer listener questions. If you'd like to hear more about my thoughts and opinions on building wealth and the stock market, you can check out the Wealth Setting Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth. Usually on John's answers like this, I have stuff to add. I don't. It was perfect. It was complete. It was comprehensive. I have nothing to add. Well done, John. Um, next up, question on horizontal beehives for the bee whisperer, Michael Jordan. Hey, it's your buddy and the beekeeping guide, Michael Jordan, AB Friendly Company, Cheyenne, Wyoming. I've been taking your questions on bees, apiary management, the making of fine meads. I got a question from some of the cool kids from Zello. Ford from Zello is asking on my thoughts on a horizontal Langstrom hive. He asks, I'm getting ready to build my first hive and I can't decide between top bar or horizontal Langstrom. I like the horizontal design because I can add frames one at a time without adding an entire box. I can build it either in either design, but I kind of like being able to pre-built frames and foundation. Any options or advice would be great. So Ford, what you're talking about is what to call a horizontal or tabletop hive. Ecobox, ecobox.com. Albert uh, making the small Ecobox has horizontal hives that you can see. Using small frames, micro technology to large frames to what they call multiple hive box locations in one. So I think that's like one of the best bets to reach out to find anything about your horizontal hive design is to find him. He has some great information on, uh, how to incorporate small frames and large frames into this box. So I think it's a, a pretty cool system. Uh, you know, when, it, when you're looking, uh, when you're looking at horizontal highs, right, you're, you're basically talking like top bar beekeeping, but you're just, you're trying to make horizontal boxes longer. You said you like the frames, you like the foundation. The one thing that I can say is like, you want to start a horizontal hive if you're using the whole thing all the way across, which is a maximum of 30 frames. Right, and I wouldn't use anything deeper than a medium because you're going to be going a long way across. Uh, that box would be extremely heavy with with one whole deep frames all the way across. Uh, I think that when you do it, do it like a nook. Put your bees in, and over a period of time, every you know every week, you add like two frames. Once brooding starts, uh, you need to have like four to five frames of brood before you would even add a frame after ten. The object is for every, you know, I would say five frames full of brood you add to, and you just keep working across. 
there's no difference between what you're talking about and top bar, except that it's being held together with the frame. So it's easier for you to hold up and, uh, and investigate more on your looking. I have a couple that I made. They were easier for kids to work because we had bees on one side and you could look and investigate on the other side of what was going on by switching, manipulating the entrance for the bees, making them move in and out from different locations. So on a horizontal hive, you can open up one side for a period of time and then open up the other side, adjusting them to come out the back side, which is kind of interesting and stuff, uh, depending on what you're doing with the hive. If you're going to construct one, you know, just, Man, I, I would totally look at the Urban Beekeeping by EcoBee Box. Uh, their website is ecobeebox.net. Um, you know, Albert is a tremendous beekeeper out of Utah, and he's basically, I think, is like pioneering like micro bee technology with small hives and, and this type of hive that you're looking at. So I think if you investigate with him a little bit more, I think that's the best person to reach out to because that's who I'd be reaching out to talk more about it. So when you're, when you're on Zello next time, Ford, uh, the horizontal Langstroth hive is not a bad idea. Make sure it's a medium box. Add only if two to three frames after a good growth is seen. But you know, anything like that, you, you definitely want to take some uh, beekeeping skills and, uh, anything else that would be necessary to manage the bees that it's never really the hive. It's the beekeeper. Once again, I'm Michael Jordan with AB Friendly coming in Cheyenne, Wyoming. You know, taking your phone calls on mead, apiary management, the keeping of different types of bees. Like I've always said, be the beekeeper that you want to be. Buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Buy it from a small cottage industry. Hey, help your fellow man because one day you're going to need help too. I'm going to say I really like the idea of a horizontal Landstorff hive. I think it kind of bridges a gap between the technology that's easy to use and a little bit better for the bees. There's more than one way to do it. There is uh, using standard frames like Michael was talking about that support the comb in a typical way. And there's also doing it more like a top bar with frame but without a, a, a center core for them to draw the comb off of where they're actually going to build the comb the way they would in a top bar, but it's surrounded by frame, which makes it more stable for removing it. Uh, it's, it's a cool technology, and... Uh, in my opinion, uh, having you know spent a few years working with bees, it seems like it would be easier because as you build hives up and you stack them, high, the higher you stack them, you know the more it it's, can be an issue to work with them. And then part of it is, let's say you have you know two halves on top of your main box, and you want to get down into that main box to check out what's going on with the queen cells and stuff like that. Well, you have two boxes you have to pull off, where with a horizontal hive, you just simply have an excluder at some point that excludes the queen from you know coming back into the comb that you're having the bees work for honey. Uh, so when you remove that top, you know where your division points. It, it, it just seems easier to me. And Again, I'm a rank amateur beekeeper, but it, it seems like if I were ever going to do bees against the way I would do it um, personally. So my question today is pretty simple. It comes from uh, Michael. Michael says, what is the purpose of secondary racking and mead making 
or any fermentation. I've heard you mention it a number of times in the show, but not having gotten to any alcohol production yet, I'm not familiar with what it is or why it's done. Thank you, Mike. Mike, you know, it's, uh, it's one of those things we throw around when we're brewers, inventors, and mead makers, and we assume people know what it means. And all that it really means is we have, and it doesn't matter if it's a big fermenter or a small fermenter, it doesn't matter what it is. You know, any size fermenter, it doesn't matter if it's a small batch, large batch, it could be a five-gallon batch, it could be a 50-gallon batch. It doesn't matter what it is. But we take the wort or the must, or depending on what we're making, we take the stuff we're fermenting and we siphon it or use some other means of transport. If, for instance, some fermenters actually have uh, kind of a cone to catch sediment and above that a tap where we can just use gravity rather than a true siphon. And we move it from one fermenter to the other, and then we continue the fermentation process. That's, that's what racking is. We take it out of one fermenter, put it in another, and leave as much of the solids behind as possible. Now, why do we do this? We do this in general because... When we do a fermentation, there is an actual heavy fermentation that does the majority of everything that's going to happen from a standpoint of yeast consuming carbohydrate, sugars, and chewing them up and nomming on them and reproducing and swelling their population and basically pooping out carbon dioxide and alcohol. And once that subsides you can be at a point where there's really not much fermenting left to do or there could be a significant amount of fermenting left to do depending on the yeast and what you were fermenting, but it's going to go really, really slow if, if that's the case. And if it's not a lot of fermenting left to do, then it, it still may take a while to clear and condition to the point where you're ready to either keg or bottle it. So we have a time lag between when that big, kicked-off, heavy-duty fermentation stops and when we want to put it into a bottle or a cask. And so what we do not want is that you know two-inch thick layer of dead yeast staying in contact with that, set, that, that fermentation for a longer period of time. We want to get those two separated. And if it has any sort of adjuncts in it, let's say food, uh, uh, fruit, herbs, spices, vegetable, it doesn't matter what it is, there's also a point where, like, okay, we've taken enough of that, and you can start, just like when you make tea, if you leave tea sit too long, it can get tannic, it can develop off flavors. So we've kind of, you know, we, let's say we made a persimmon mead, and by the time we go to rack to a secondary, it might be 10 days in, the persimmon looks like this nasty, mucky plup, right? And there's a big, giant yeast layer. We're going to then move that over to that secondary fermenter to allow the fermentation to finish without contact with those other things. And we're going to get much more clear product in the end if we do that. And there's, there, there's you know a lot of other things that can happen at that point. Sometimes we actually add things in the secondary fermenter. Some people like to do things like vanilla in that secondary fermenter. They'll taste it at the time that they rack it, and they'll say, well, I kind of want to add some vanilla to this, and that's a good point to add that because there's alcohol now in the ferment. And that alcohol is better at dissolving the little volatile oils in the vanilla and actually extracting its flavor. That's why we use something like, you know, whiskey or bourbon to make vanilla extract, for instance. Um, so those are, those are the reasons why. Now, part of what I use it for is an opportunity when I'm doing small batch to get a full gallon. 
So what I like to do is I will do a fermentation at about three pounds of honey to the gallon, which is going to give us somewhere in the neighborhood of a 15% by alcohol mead. And then if we've added any fruits, however sugar contribution they have, if we add four cups of blackberries, obviously there's sugar in those blackberries, and that sugar is also converted. So maybe it's going to push another 1% on our gallon, so maybe 16% alcohol. So when I do that, I know full well I can't fill that one-gallon container to the top because it will blow chunks out of the container. The other thing I know is since I have a fruit in there, even if I did fill it to the surface, I'm displacing liquid volume that's later you know, I'm going to remove it, the liquid from the solid and that solid that remains you know that took up space that can never be given back so what I do is I make a concentrated mead that I want to finish a gallon from so instead of doing something like a two and a half pound to the gallon mead I make a three pound to the gallon and then when I go to the secondary since most of all of that vicious you know, aggressive fermentation is done and all of those solids are gone I'll take filtered water and I'll top that second uh, secondary one gallon fermenter to the top. I'll affix a, a you know a, a fermentation lock, an airlock, and I'll let it finish until it clears. And if I'm convinced it's done fermenting and it hasn't really cleared the way that I'd like yet, I'll often throw it in the refrigerator. And since I make small batch one gallon batches, and I also do make two and a half gallon, actually two gallon batches in a two and a half gallon carboy that I get from Uline, either one of those fit nicely into a refrigerator. And that's called cold crashing. And that will drop everything out of that fermenter. And then we'll go ahead and proceed to bottling. And by doing that, we get a finished product that's separated from the solids in the fermentation so that we don't get any off flavors. And we also get a much more finished, clear product. So that's what we do, why we do it, and how we do it. And I hope that makes sense. Anyway, guys, hope you enjoyed today's show. Uh, remind, remind, remind you that one of the ways you can always support the Survival Podcast without a lot of effort, in fact, almost no effort at all, is whenever you're going to uh, shop online, just go to, to a little website called tspaz.com first and check out all of our reviews and stuff like that. And as long as you go to tspaz.com before you shop online, you can help support the work we do no matter what you buy. Now, I have an item today that kind of fits our last topic, meat making. Uh, it's also really most of you guys are going to use it for cooking. This is the Microplane Zester and Grater. And what this is, it's a little bitty tool for grating uh, stuff, like when you're going to grate cheese or you're going to uh, you know, maybe take the zest off of a lemon or a lime or something like that. And they call it Microplane because it's a very, very fine grater. Now, a friend of mine named Sandy helped us out with one of our workshops with some of the cooking, and she brought me one of these as a gift. And I had this little, pretty fine-grained grater for uh, cheeses and stuff like that. And I always used it when I was zesting stuff or if I was putting nutmeg in something or what have you. And uh, so I told her, well, I have a cheese grater. You didn't have to do it. She said, if you use this, you'll never use anything else. I always am willing to, you know, explore things like that, especially when somebody comes bearing gifts. And so I started using it. She's right. This is the right tool for the right job. Now, how would this apply to your mead making? Hey, throw some orange zest in that mead. That's one of my favorite things that I will add to meads, even if I don't include any orange itself. I've done an orange blossom honey mead 
where I've used orange zest as my main adjunct and a little, like, one tablespoon of that three flowers blend. It was fantastic, and it had so much orange character, but yet it didn't get any of the somewhat hardness that you can get if you use too much citrus. Because remember, when you ferment out citrus, you end up with basically the sour only because the sweet is gone. So that, that's an example of, like, one use for it. It also helps you elevate everything that you do in the kitchen. I have some really good, cool ideas, techniques, and recipes in the write-up today, uh, some that involve chicken and some that involve some other things. This is one of those things that allows you to do what I call in cooking a cooking cheat code. Like, it's a little tiny thing that takes five extra minutes when you're cooking a meal that elevates the meal far more than the effort would indicate. That's what I consider a cheat code. Gochujang chili paste is another thing I consider like a cheat code because it's an ingredient when we incorporate it into something like an Asian meatball that people are like, wow, with the spice and what, where's that from? And you can't quite put your finger on it, but you know this is something better than it would be otherwise. That's what this thing does. It lets you do all kinds of cool stuff. And hey, if nothing else, get one of these things to make lemoncello. What is lemoncello? Oh, my friends, Google it. Google it to make it for yourself and make it at much higher alcohol by volume than the stuff you can buy in a store. You take a few lemons that you're going to do something else with, take the zest, make lemon shallow out of it, and your microplane grater just paid for itself seven times over because you take inexpensive vodka and you make a cordial that is very, very expensive for a very good reason because it's very, very good. Lemoncello, elevating your chicken, making your meads, you name it, you want the microplane grater for that. Check it out at tspaz.com, and you can find everything there broken down into categories. And remember, if you see it there, I own it, I have spent my own money on it, or I wouldn't recommend that you do the same thing. With that, let's get to our song of the day. Song of the day today is the final song in the week of sticks. This song is called Borrowed Time, and it actually links back to a song that we heard at the beginning of the week. John was pretty crafty, I think, when he put this playlist together for us. Um, We had the song Madame Blue, and Madame Blue talked about how, you know, the guys from Sticks kind of felt like they grew up in the glory days of America, the, the 50s and the 60s. And, you know, when they wrote Madame Blue, it was right at the dawn of the bicentennial celebration, and they saw all the commercialization around it and all, and they felt that America really just had lost those glory days. This song is a little further into the future. This song came out in 1979. And it's talking about the same kind of thing, actually quite a bit more directly. And looking at the 80s are coming. I think about how old that we are, that those of us that remember when this song was new. The 80s are coming. And you know, the left says right and the, the right says no. And it's the left says yes and the right says no. No, yeah, no, yeah. Some of the lines in this song. But what, it, what again, is it's hearkening back to, you know, we... We're such a carefree people in the 50s and 60s. It really was kind of the glory days of America. And even when we were involved and wrapped up in the Vietnam War, I think it wasn't until the late 60s that the movement to end it really caught on because people just assumed we, well, we'll win. And we, we must be right. And there was a certain, you know, naivety in America that an innocence that felt if we were doing something, it had to be the right thing all the time. And I think a lot of times people lament not being in that place anymore. And as I said when I covered the first song of this week, I don't know that their experience is really a Tommy Shaw and, and, and what have you. I don't know if their experience is really that unique. Because I felt this way about the 1980s. 
You know, we had the Cold War going on, and the Russians were the bad guys, and hell, we even had a bad Russian guy in WWF wrestling that Hulk Hogan beat like over and over and over again and never lost to. And just ignore the fact that they got pulled over smoking dope in uh, Hogan's vet. Oh, that was the Iron Sheik that got, but that's a true story, by the way. Hogan and the Iron Sheik busted smoking dope in Hogan's vet, hauling ass down A1A in Florida. Um, but you know, you had that, that just, we must be the good guys in everything. Not that we must be the good guys, we must be the good guys in everything we do. I think waking up to the reality that not everything we do is right. Not everything we do is always the, the, the right decision. And, and calling on ourselves to be better, maybe that is the gateway to a new glory days of America. If we can figure out how to do that without all the stupidity that seems to be coming up in today's world, instead of worrying about the fact that maybe we interfere too much with other governments and nations, we're worried about somebody being offended because they heard a word they didn't like. And that's when I feel like we've lost the glory days of America. And I really don't know what our future is going to be. But I do know this. There are those of us that just will not entertain such stupidity. And uh, maybe we're living on borrowed time. Maybe we're not. Only the future will tell us. But hell, we just got to keep rocking, man. This is a great song for a Friday. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. <laughs>